Good morning, everyone. Good morning to all of you who are watching online in pajamas at the kitchen table or the living room who are in cool or decent climate temperature. I'm up here sweating already, and we haven't even started. Um, we're in a series called Acts. We're going through the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 9. If you would do me a favor, open up your Bibles to chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is a Bible in the pew back in front of you. Um, it's a black Bible. You can grab that one, open it up to page 917, 917. If you don't own a Bible, you can have that Bible. That is our gift to you to keep, to study God's word here at the chapel. We read God's word. We study God's word. We are all about God's word. We'll be in chapter nine, the first uh, 13 verses. I want to give you the main point right before I start. Usually I like to build up to it, but here it is. I'm just going to tell you what the main point is. They'll put it up on the screen for you. It's, it's this. This is, this is the main point. The main point is God's grace has the power to transform the worst sinners and use them as instruments of his grace to an unbelieving world. Therefore, there is no one too far from God to save. Like, think about that. Right, like God has the grace, right? He gives the, the grace to unbelievers, the worst of sinners, and then to shame sin and death, to shame Satan and the demons, he uses them as instruments of his grace and mercy to an unbelieving world. And then conclusion is, therefore, there is no one too far gone that God can save. You know, I often think, I don't know this about you, this is me, sometimes like whether I'm worshiping or I'm just thinking about my life, thinking about who I am, like I don't know, I'm sure you guys don't get this from me, but I'm an ornery person, um, I'm sure you're looking at me like, oh my gosh, he's so good looking, and then on top of all that, um, he dresses well, um, on top of all that, like, he seems so reverent for the Lord, and surely he can't do anything wrong. Well, if you ask the high schoolers, uh, they would tell you otherwise. But I often think, sometimes, like, I often think, and actually, to be honest with you, I do this frequently, especially in the last couple of years, like, anyway. Like, sometimes I imagine myself, right? Like, close my eyes sometimes, or I'm thinking, and I imagine myself before God, like, I imagine how he looks like, and I'd imagine him like sitting on a throne. There's like all these angels and, and elders worshiping and saying, holy, holy. And then I'm just, I'm just there on the far distance, and I'm just, I'm just looking at him. And I feel like the gap between where I'm at and him is like, too far like it's almost like I can't reach him I can't touch him and like I kind of see him but I really don't see him like I think I see him and and in that moment like I stand there and I'm just like man like what's what's the distance what what's keeping me from him like what's keeping me far away from him have you ever felt that like just in your own life like you felt like you were so far away from God and the distance, right? The reason why you feel so far away from God is because like, it's the sin, right? Like you think about it, you're like, well, the gap between this point and him is like my sin. 
my past. Like, how could he ever love me? Like, how could he ever come closer? I want to get closer, but he's a holy and just God. And I am a filthy sinner with this past, with this, with this mess, with the issues of my life. And surely, like, he can't love me. Like, surely he's too far away to love me because I'm so bad and I'm so evil. And then you feel bad, right? Like you feel bad because you're like, man, like if only I can be a better person, if only I would stop sinning, if only I would stop being a knucklehead, like if only I would just cut it out and maybe he'll get a little bit closer to me. Like, has that ever happened to you? I think of this passage, right? I think of Paul. Because, I mean, think about this, that the man who persecuted the church is going to be the man that we'll read in this passage will be saved. Look at verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Like, look at how Luke describes, the author of Acts, how does Luke describe Saul? Saul is also Paul, by the way. He says, this is the man who, who breathes threats against the church, and who has committed much murder on the church. On the flip side, right? I think sometimes we, we are very good at being introspective about our own lives, right? Like we, we can like self-evaluate our motives and tell God like, God, like I am wretched, I'm a sinner, but I don't mean to be an idiot. Forgive me, like we can be very introspective about ourselves because we know our hearts, we know our minds to an extent and, and the gap and the distance we, we see ourselves before God, like we, we can make excuses and, and, and we can beg and plead God like there's a sorrow in our heart because we know that like we can draw closer to him. But on the flip side, I think often we can be cynical Right, like we can be introspective on our own lives, but then cynical about other people. Like God can't save that person. They're too sinful, right? Like when we think about the worst person on the planet, or really the worst person in our own lives, the person who has treated us the worst, the person who has maybe been abusive to us, or the person who has, has made us feel bad about ourselves, has made other people feel bad. Like think about the person who you dislike the most. And then I wondered if we would say, yeah, that person deserves grace and mercy. I think we could get cynical. I think we could often say, like, yes, I am a good candidate of God's grace and mercy, but often we can say that that person isn't a good candidate of God's grace and mercy because of all the pain and trauma they have caused, right? Think about in our own culture. Would, 
Would we say about certain dictators in the world that they're deserving of God's grace and mercy, that God can save them? Or do we say, no, they're too far gone? Like, surely God can't save them. They've, they've done the worst thing possible, and it is impossible for God's grace and mercy to intervene. I think we can be cynical, and I think as we get older in our Christian faith, like, we tend, we tend to lose faith in that God has the power to save the worst sinner and use them. And I wonder that if we believe that, like if we truly believe that God has the power to save the worst sinners, that God can use the worst sinners as instruments of his grace to an unbelieving world, and if we believe that no one is too far gone to be saved, what would our church and our life look like? Like, what if you and I believed that God's grace can reach the deepest, darkest parts of human hearts? What would happen to our testimony? Like, what would happen at our workplace? What would happen at, at the office on the construction site? What would happen in our homes at family gatherings? What would happen in our classrooms and our schools? What would happen? We would actually see God's grace and mercy, but often we are cynical because we think that somehow God can only save these type of people. And I do this all the time, right? Like when I think of family members and friends who are wayward and I know their past sin, like I also think about people who struggle with gender identity and sexual fluidity. Like, like we often think like, man, that is a hard, a hard thing to struggle with and, and God can't change them. And I'm here to tell you like, if God has the power to save Saul, change his name to Paul, then surely our friends, our neighbors can receive that same grace. Like the worst sin you can think possible, God can redeem. Like think about that. Think about that, about the people, your friends, your family members. Like, like what it would look like if God had intervened, right? This is, this is what happened to Paul. This is a man that the Bible says was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Like, like Luke is intentional about using disciples of the Lord. These are just not like people. These are people who are just converted, people who are part of the church, right? Look what it says in verse two. These are people who belong to the way, another title of the church. These are men and women, right? Like, Think about this, how influential women were in the church that even Paul, a Pharisee, thought that it would be wise to, to arrest the women. Right? Like, it wasn't just the men. This is how influential the church was, but this is how deep sin was in Saul's life, that he thought and he believed the lie and he persecuted the church. And, and so often we look at Saul, so often we look at his life, in other people, we know God can save Saul because the Bible says God did, but, but people like him, people who, people who are far away from God, people who don't look like us or talk like us, who act like us, like, can God save them? Do you believe that? I don't know. Sometimes I don't. And that's because I've been wrapped up in my own heart and mind thinking that 
God only saves this type of people or this group of influencers or I don't know, whoever the people are. I think, I think we ought to change our paradigm. We ought to change the way we think about God's grace, right? We, we ought to change that, that the distance that we think that is between us and God is a distance that doesn't exist only in our imagination, right? Like, like imagining the distance of sin between us and God is an imagination, right? Because if we are children of Christ, like he has saved us, he has redeemed us, like he draws near to us, right? Like we serve a God that we don't have to go to him. He comes to us. We serve a God that draws near to the broken and the hurting people. And if God, if God can draw near to us, surely he can draw near to the worst person we could imagine, right? Right? Okay, we, sometimes we gotta say it out loud to believe it. <laughs> I want you to look at verse three. We read last week and we talked about a divine appointment, right? The Ethiopian eunuch meets Philip, or Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch in the desert. There's a divine appointment that God created, and in verse three, we see another divine appointment. We see in this passage that something miraculous is going to happen. Verse three says, now as he went on his way, this is Saul, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and filling and falling to the ground, he heard a, a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Like, I would never want to hear those words, right? Like, Tim, Tim, why are you an idiot? <laughs> Sometimes I think I hear it. But I mean, like, think how powerful that is that in the moment, the risen Lord appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And what is Saul's response? Look at verse five. He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Wow. In that moment, something miraculous happens. Here's what happens. The risen Lord appears to Saul. This is called a, a Christophany or a Theophany. A Christophany is simply is an appearance of Christ, right? This is an appearance of Christ, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament after the ascension, right? This is a Christophany. In this moment, something miraculous happens. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, appears to Saul and tells him, why are you persecuting me? And in verse five, another miracle happens. There's a revelation. In that moment, Saul realizes who God is. Now, he doesn't know like this is Jesus the Christ, but what he does know, especially if we know this from the Greek, is that he is aware that this is not just an ordinary person. This is not just a regular person walking by. This is not one of his guards. This is not somebody he knows. This is a divine intervention. This is a divine 
person who has appeared to him. And in that moment, he has become aware that he is now interacting with someone who's not human, but someone who is divine, who has divine quality. And in that response, Jesus Christ says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I think this is beautiful for us to remember that I think that Jesus identifies with the church. I think he also identifies with you and me. Right, like it wasn't, it wasn't the church that, that Saul was persecuting. It wasn't the church that Saul was pursuing to arrest them and extradite them back to Jerusalem. It was Jesus that he was going after. Jesus identifies with us in this moment that the people who persecute us, the people who do harm to us, the people who bring much pain and frustration are not doing it to us. They're doing it to him. It is him that they persecute. And in that moment, Saul is met with Jesus Christ and, and Jesus doesn't come to judge him. Notice that, right? Like, what does Jesus say right after? Jesus says, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. In that moment, Jesus doesn't come as a judge to Saul. Though, Saul was on his way to Damascus to judge the church. Jesus wasn't coming as an executioner to Saul. He wasn't there to punish Saul for his sins right in that moment. Though Saul was on his way to punish for the quote-unquote sins of the church. No, 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 no. In that moment, Paul, right, Saul, is met with the risen Lord and Jesus comes to him, not as a judge, not as an executioner, not as someone to punish him of his sin. He is coming to him as Lord and Savior. I am Jesus. This was a divine appointment. Unlike the Ethiopian eunuch we talked about last week, he isn't seeking knowledge and truth, right? Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53. No, no, no. This is Saul. He's on a mission and he is, he's there to persecute the church. Saul lacked the virtue that we see in the Ethiopian eunuch, yet Jesus doesn't, doesn't judge him for that. Right, like I think, I think when we all come to faith, like it doesn't have to be in a particular way, right? When we see the Ethiopian eunuch come to faith, it's totally different the way Saul comes to faith, right? Like Saul was coming to do something bad and God intervened, right? It's like that passage in Genesis, right? What, what he meant for good got turned, what he meant for evil got turned it into good. Think about that, that in that moment, while Saul was going to persecute the church, God redeemed that moment he redeemed that moment by appearing and revealing himself to Saul. And what we see in subsequent verses in verses eight, look at verse eight. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Like, 
not only does he meet Jesus, but something happens to him. Something physical happens to him. And here's the physical. The physical is that he loses his sight. And him losing his sight, I think, is a physical image of his spiritual position. Right? Saul, in that moment, is spiritually dead. He can't see the truth. He doesn't understand the truth. He is not aware of the truth. He is blinded to the truth. And not only is he spiritually blinded, he's also physically blinded, right? Like this physical blindness is a representation of of Saul's heart. He cannot see God. He doesn't understand God. He, He doesn't know him. And in this moment, this spiritual condition also affects his physical condition. That God uses his physical condition of blindness to turn his heart around. Right? He uses that very thing as a means to extend grace and mercy because if he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have gone to Damascus. Right? Like, think about it. God orchestrated divinely that Saul would go to Damascus and that he would meet him in the road, that he would be blinded and have to be led. Like, think about all the connections, right? Spiritually dead and blind, also physically blind. Physically needing guidance, spiritually needing guidance. God used this story to communicate a truth to us, and that truth is that we are all in need of spiritual help. And we are also in need of physical help. This is a beautiful testimony of God's grace and mercy towards us, This is a beautiful testimony of God's grace and mercy to people who we think do not deserve his grace. There's also someone else in the story. The story breaks and we're introduced to Ananias. The Lord appears to Ananias in a vision. He tells Ananias, hey, I need you to do me a favor. There's a guy He's at a house. In fact, the owner of the house is Judas, not Judas the disciple. This is another Judas. I want you to go to this street called Straight. You'll find the house there. And at that house, you're going to find a guy. This is his name, Saul of Tarsus. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray for him. He's blind. He needs healing. Would you go and pray for him? What do you think Ananias' response is? should be, yes, Lord, I'm running, I'm going. Like, no, right, like that's not what Ananias says. In fact, where, where Philip is a runner, like he goes, like wherever it is, he doesn't matter. In fact, Philip's the type of guy, like you don't have to tell him what to do, you just tell him, hey, I need you to go. He's like, all right, I'm going. Ananias is totally different. Ananias is like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? That's the New York thing, I did it on purpose so you guys can hear it, the accent. <laughs> This is Ananias' response. Look at verse 13. 13 says, But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints. Notice how he uses the word your saints. At Jerusalem. 
And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. I think Ananias is the reluctant messenger. Rightfully so. Like, I don't think anybody in this room or watching online going to say, yeah, like, why, why wouldn't he go? He should go. Like, I would go. No, you won't. Like, I wouldn't. Because what does he tell the Lord? He tells the Lord, like, I've heard about this guy. This is the guy that not only persecutes the church, this is what he says. He, he's the guy that has done much evil against your saints. And what are the saints? The saints are the church, but these are the called out ones. This is a, a title used in the Old Testament. This reminds me of Moses. It's been a while since I've done a connection to the Old Testament, right? You guys... I don't know. We're going to have to do an Old Testament book one day. I'm getting too used to the New Testament. I'm not liking it. I'm joking. That's a joke. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining, right? Like, think about this. Like, Moses is on the, mount, on the mountain. God is going to tell them, hey, listen, um, I'm, I'm going to destroy these people. These people are crazy. They think they're on spring break. They think they're in Miami, and they're doing everything, everyone. Like, it's getting out of hand. I'm going to kill them all, Right? This is not spring break. Y'all need to cut it out. So the way I'm going to cut it out is I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to kill them. And what is Moses' response? He says, no, 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 no. Like, these are your people. You saved them. You took them out of Egypt. You brought them into the desert. You said you were going to lead them. And now you're going to kill them? What is the world going to say about you? That you saved your own people and yet killed them? So what he uses is, is like, your people, your people, these are your people. The same thing that Ananias uses, these are your saints. In fact, he quotes a title of, of Joel. Remember Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching the gospel to the people at the festival. What does he quote? Joel chapter 2. And what does he say in Joel chapter 2? He quotes it verbatim. He says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be so Ananias is using a title. It's almost like he's going back and forth with God. Weren't you the guy that said in Joel? Weren't you the guy through the power of your spirit preached through Peter that said anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved? These are your people and then you want me to go and pray for this guy? No way, Jose. I ain't going. I think we look at this and say, like, he's right. I wouldn't go. Would you go? But you see, sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, what God requires of us is obedience. Sometimes, if not all the time, what God requires from us is obedience. To do hard things during hard times for his perfect plan. Sometimes it's not easy to make the right decision. Sometimes it's going to cost you something to make the right decision. And sometimes you're going to have to put yourself in positions and places that are difficult for you and the people that you love because God is not asking you for your opinion. He is simply asking for your obedience. That's a tough thing to say, right? Like you, you think that 
it would be difficult for Ananias to say yes, but this is the risen Lord who has appeared to him in a vision. Right? And I think the encouragement for us this morning is that sometimes, if not often, God requires us obedience even when it costs us something. Even when it's difficult and hard. Because at the end of the day, we're here to serve one God and one God alone. We have to answer to one person and one person alone. Ananias is overruled. But look how gracious God is. Like, where we would think that Ananias standing before God in this vision would say, whoa, like how dare Ananias talk to God that way? Like why would he even question him? What we see is God's grace and mercy extended to Ananias in a loving and kind way. Look at verse 15. Look, look and see how gracious and kind God is. God doesn't tell Ananias, you're wrong. Do as I say. Do not speak. Just go. Look what God does. In verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Unlike Philip, Ananias is full of fear and resistant towards God's plan. And we don't blame him for it. But yet, in that moment, Ananias is met not with a judge declaring what is right. In that moment, he's met by a gracious and loving God. Why? Because God invites Ananias into a special revelation. He tells him, here's how I'm going to address your fear. Like, you're afraid to go. I understand that. I'm going to meet you at your fear. And how am I going to meet you at your fear? I'm going to invite you to understand something, a revelation from me that, that, that I'm going to communicate. And what does he tell them? I'm going to use him as an instrument. In that moment, Ananias is invited in, with God to understand God's redemptive plan. God is extending him grace and mercy. Where Philip was just told to go and there was no answers, in that moment, God in his grace and his mercy says, okay, you're afraid? Let me tell you what I'm gonna do. And in that moment, I can only imagine, right? But in that moment, what do you think begins to swell up in Ananias' heart? Courage, boldness, right? That I am now invited to be an instrument of God's redeeming plan to go to my worst enemy, to pray for them and heal them. Not by my power, but by his power. And if he has the power to save him and he has the power to redeem him, then surely God has the power to give me boldness and courage to do the thing I don't want to do. That's beautiful. Because it tells us that God meets us right where we are with our fear and our sin, right? Think about it. Like Paul is met by God with all his sin, all his problems, his waywardness, his wickedness. And yet God meets him where he's at. With Ananias, God meets him with his fear and anxiety. This is the God of grace and mercy that we see all throughout the Old and New Testament. So what's 
So what happens now? Well, Ananias responds again. He's given a second chance, but now he's given a second chance because he's now made aware of God's grace and mercy towards Saul. Verse 17 says, Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, and immediately something like scales from his eyes fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Wow. We just celebrated the profession of faith through baptism by four people in this service. And it's a demonstration to us that God can save anyone. And it's a reality for us, the power of the gospel activated in our lives by the proclamation of the word. And the lesson for us this morning is, as I said before, is that God can save the worst of sinners. And Paul even says he's the worst of sinners. In 1 Timothy chapter one, Paul says, I am the chief of all sinners, and yet God saved me. Think about that, that if, if Paul is able to say that he is the chief among sinners and, and God was gracious and merciful towards him to save him, who in our life, in our circles of influence, in our world, God cannot save? Right? Think about that. If God can save the worst of sinners, in fact, if God can save you and me, God can save anyone. Like his grace and mercy are not limited to a social status. His grace and mercy is not limited to a type of life or a person. His grace and mercy is not limited to a location or a region. God's grace and mercy extends to everyone who would believe, anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord. God's grace and mercy extends to them. Saul was the kind of person no one expected to be saved, yet God does it. Why? You know why God saves, saves Paul? Not only because he called him and chose him before the foundations of the world to save him, but you want to know why God saves Paul? God saves Paul to shame sin, to shame uh, death, to shame Satan and demons, and to shame us. Because where we are tempted to believe that God can save anyone, we read the story and says God can save them all. Right? Like, think about that. In this passage, you know who's put to shame the most? Sin and death. Because death and sin cannot trump, cannot overcome the power of God's grace and mercy. If God can save the, save the worst of sinners, then God can use the worst of sinners. The persecutor becomes the persecuted. Think about this in this moment. We've talked about Acts chapter 1 verse 8, right? Which is like the Acts great commission. You will see power from my spirit to go to the ends of the earth. And in this moment, God saves a, a, a Hellenistic Jew. 
so that he would become the messenger of the gospel to the Gentiles. Think about that, that the majority of the New Testament is written by Paul, who was a murderer. God can save the worst of sinners, and surely he can use the worst of sinners. And that is a profound statement. That is, that is a, an encouragement to us this morning that where you and I think where we fail, God can redeem. Right? Like, as I told you before, I'm standing there before this God in my imagination and, and the distance between me and him is my sin and my past and my shortcomings and my character flaws. Right? Like, that distance is only my imagination because what we see in this passage that if God drew near to Saul to change him into Paul, then God draws near to us and there is no distance. There is no distance between us and God. And if there is no distance, that means that he's present, using us, shaping us. This is why the church is a beautiful mess. But it's it's God's grace, God's power redeeming the worst of us to use us so that you and I can testify to an unbelieving world that his grace and his mercy is for them. And if God can use Paul, think about this. If God can use Paul to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, then God can use you. He can use you as an instrument of his grace and mercy. The question you have to ask yourself is that are are you still living in the past? Like, Are you still overwhelmed by your past sins and mistakes? Like, is what's keeping you from working for God, living out for God, is it your sin? Is it your shame? Is it your guilt? Just know that that's a lie. That there is grace and mercy for you. That when you feel like God can't use you because of what you've done, just remember that he died for it on the cross a long time ago. That you walk in victory, not in shame. Think about that. God can use the worst of sinners. And if God can use Saul, he can use us. Let's pray. Father God, you are good. You are great. You are powerful. And in this moment, we declare your greatness collectively. We declare gratitude towards your son Jesus who's given the opportunity for us to live a life according to your will. And God, I ask you, Lord, I pray on behalf of this church that those people who are feeling the weight of their sin, who are feeling that, that they're not good enough, would you reach down to their hearts and touch them? Would you also remind us that if that you can save the worst sinners and that where we think people are too far gone, your grace is for them. Help us this morning. Help us this week to be reminded that your grace and mercy is for all people. We pray this in Christ's name and the people of God say. This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, 
Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.